Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Smart Cities Chronicles podcast. My name is Adam Beck. I'm the host of the Chronicles, uh, and of course, my day job is Executive Director at the Smart Cities Council here in the Australia New Zealand region. Welcome to podcast episode 21. Uh, we're going to be talking sort of all things problem definition and framing, uh, framing of smart cities action and investment today. And joining me on the line, uh, I've got Corey Gray from LVX Global. Corey, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Adam. It's always nice to talk to you. Indeed. Um, Corey, let's, uh, let's start with a bit of a, a bio for our listeners. Uh, who, who are you and, what, and what's your day job? Um, well, I'm the CEO of LVX Global. We're, a, a, I guess, an integrated uh, advisory firm. With a, we've had a smart city discipline for about 10 years now. We have other people involved in things that would probably traditionally fall into accounting and strategic services um, and also people involved in things like um, electrical and technology engineering, fire and life safety and more traditional building and infrastructure services. Um, I founded this business 27 years ago. It was a pretty different business back then. The world was a different place, I guess, wasn't it? It was. And... and, um, so I, I'm the CEO and founder. We have a team of people around the world in the US, Australia, um, Asia, now based in Colombo, where I'll be again next week, and in Europe, based in Dublin. And I spend a lot of time of my time doing that, and a lot of my time um, painting as well. I'm sort of probably forty percent of my time a painter, an art, artist. I, I'm in total envy of, of that part of your job, um, that's for sure. And, of course, that, that work, your art, is, uh, is, is taking you global, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it's a, it is. It's really interesting because the processes, and I guess some of the stuff we'll tease out today, it's almost exactly the same thing. Someone said to me in Los Angeles last week, how do you combine the two? And I said, well, they're nearly the same. Um, because you start with a difficult problem and you, you're looking to get near to a difficult truth. If, you, if I paraphrase um, Michel Foucault, one of my favourite French philosophers, um, to continually prove uh, simple truths is not a very rewarding way to live your life. So whether it's through community enablement in smart cities and um, creating social and economic change or through art doing the same, it really is the same sort of process where you face difficult problems and, and work your way through them. Uh, Corey, we've, um, we, we, we've been sort of, um, uh, you know, colleagues for, for quite a while in the smart city space. Uh, LVX has been a, a partner company of the Smart Cities Council for, for about a year now. I certainly, uh, I certainly um, acknowledge and um, engage with LVX at a, at a very technical level in terms of sort of the disciplines and engineering and design and the detail that uh, that you guys get into. But what I find fascinating, and I think it'll come out in today's session, um, is is sort of your real intricate knowledge around the context and the strategic purpose of of, of, of smart cities. Just sort of a final general question before we dive in. Um, I mean, your, your ability as a CEO to sort of straddle the most detailed technical specification for interoperability, but then also sit above that at a real high level to engage a room of, 
you know, city people uh, around the, the the purpose and the problem definition around the city. Can you sort of share with me um, how how you've you know moved through you know your career over the last few years as as smart cities has evolved and and, and how you straddle those two levels of detail and strategic? Um, yeah, I mean, one one uh, absolutely drives the other. Um, and I was talking two weeks ago or three weeks ago in Sri Lanka with some people in government there, and they asked about Smart City and wanted to start hearing about a lot of technology. And, and I explained to them that a lot of cities around the world that I'm dealing with or, or seeing first or second hand, uh, it's a bit like building an A380 aeroplane and then driving it around on the ground. They're not getting maximum value for the investment in the technology that they've bought. Mm. And so for us, the foundation level questions are, who are your people? What are their needs? And what are their aspirations? Mm. And so that there's so much technology now. I, I every week have three different people ringing me with the best smart lighting system in the world and all of this stuff. But the first and most fundamental question in anything you do in your whole life and smart cities, just, just a microcosm of that is who are the people, what are their needs and what are their aspirations? And so until you've teased that question out, then all of the other stuff doesn't matter because you might be delivering to somebody the most amazing piece of technology. Like I say, if you put me in the cockpit of an A380, I wouldn't know how to, make it move forward a meter you know you, people need to have all of their their house in order in terms of their processes and their operations and understand why they they have this plane and why they're going to take it from a to b before anything else matters so for us that's funda uh, fundamentally important and we probably spend 80 percent of our time I, I think you've heard me use the term engineering psychiatrists <laughs> yes, <laughs> we get, yes we get people in from cities and we ask them to lay down and take a deep breath and then tell us about themselves you know, you don't, you don't go to the doctor and the doctor talks about themselves for an hour. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> they sit there and listen. And, and I think there's been a bit of a, of, of, a, of a problem in the smart city sector in the last while in that a lot of people want to talk about everything that they know and not dive into the challenges that are being faced by their clients. Um, example, um, in, in Sri Lanka, um, um, there's a huge problem with elephants on the railway track. Now, if you want to generalise about that and then go to the New York subway or the tube in London with a great solution to keep elephants off the railway tracks, they'll think you're crazy. Mm. You've got to start with the people and their specific situations and, and, uh, and challenges and then move outwards from that. So, so just reflecting on the last little while, let, let's sort of pick, you know, the last 12 to 24 months. And, and let's sort of stick with Australia at the moment, even though you sort of touch on projects globally and we'll get into those. Can you give me some of your early reflections on the last couple of years in the smart cities space? You know, your observations, the opportunities that you've seen uh, emerge, maybe some outcomes, some goals that have been kicked in particular areas, but then also... Um, you know, where you think we, we've sort of got some gaps. What, what are your general thoughts on the last couple of years? I think in, Australia, in an Australian context, uh, cities, I mean, we have a stable government here, probably 
probably one of the main challenges we face is having multiple levels of government in terms of getting action because a lot of these projects are co-funded and co-sponsored by maybe federal, state and then local government. Um, one of, that's one of the biggest impediments, to be quite honest, is the coordination of government behind significant projects, in my experience. Um, I, I find that a lot of cities, we're working with more than a dozen at the moment actively every day. Uh, the initial part of the discussion is um, like when you go on holidays with your kids and the city jumps in the smart city car and, and then they say, are we there yet? Um, first of all, we don't know where we're going yet. And sometimes you don't even know where you're starting from and you don't know how to drive the car. So there are a whole lot of other foundation level issues to deal with in terms of corporate government, um, probity and procurement. You know, the way you buy smart city at the moment doesn't live comfortably with the procurement processes of a lot of cities and governments that you're looking to buy something complex as a, and everything is a service, software as a service, lighting as a service, recognition as a service, and you've got procurement departments. One city in particular I use as an example, I was for a year doing an advisory piece for them. And finally, after many, many, many requests to have the procurement team and the ICT team be present in a project that was driven by engineering, uh, they were, and I discovered that 18 out of the 23 people had never met each other before, and that the project engineering had had us designing for a year wasn't allowed to be procured under the current procurement guidelines, and the ICT department would never allow it to be networked to the, to the city's server. So mm -hmm. these, these are the challenges, you know. I mean, Australia's a, a country, despite um, our increasing debt through a period of sustained federal political instability that is robust, that has um, a positive outlook. So in terms of funding and investment, it's working out how to fund and how to invest. You know, I get probably every week three different um, smart city venture capital funds ringing saying, do you have any projects that we can invest in? Mm, mm. The appetite is there to invest. I've even had one, the largest uh, fund in Europe, ring and ask if we could help them write a new product for smart city investment that they could go to market with, like a visa card or a home loan or a car loan or a personal, you know. They're sitting there saying, we want to be in this space. It's the sixth biggest industry sector on the planet now and it's come from nowhere. How do we get involved? So. The real issues are about uh, governments, corporate governance and procurement at the moment. Um, the text there, um, the, the will is there, the understanding is there. The, the challenge seems to be in the, in the organizational change management that's required. In some areas, legislative change. So for example, who's gonna be the first person to have a proper piece of legislation that governs drones, for example? Mm. Who's working on that? Who, the, the opportunity for government is if you act now, then you could secure a revenue stream that I, I was talking about again with LA last week that's going to replace the fact that autonomous and connected vehicles won't speed, they won't get parking tickets, they won't park illegally, they won't overstay, there won't be drink drivers, there won't be driver's licence revenue. How are you going to replace that revenue? Um, Maybe it's by using the airspace over your roads and licensing it to Amazon and all these home delivery and Uber Eats and all of them to use that space and you have a network charge. Um, 
maybe that's the way forward. But there needs to be a lot of um, leg legislative enablement and a lot of organisational change management. Uh, and the last big challenge is cyber security. But I think all the tech companies, you know, all of your lighting bins, parking tech, smart barbecues, Wi-Fi, 4G, 5G, audio, help assist, EV cars, the whole thing, they're all ready. They've invested hugely. I think I saw in the last, the last major report, they're investing 7 trillion US dollars from 2018 to 20 calendar years in smart city. They want to sell stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the challenge for government is being, is being change ready, being legislatively ready and, and understanding how to de-risk even the most foundation level projects like streetlights and water and waste management and these things. Um, that's the biggest challenge to, to, um, to accelerate it uptake. So you, you regularly talk to me, Corey, about this idea of, you know, problem definition and it being such a fundamental, uh, you know, not only help with context, but really build sort of some foundations for then what might be, you know, action investment solution, uh, solution identification. Talk to me more about this idea of problem definition because I think everyone would go, oh, yeah, of course, you know, we identify problems and we build our smart cities strategy. But um, what what are the, the the nuances? What are the sort of, you know, the, the, the best practice sort of components or principles that you would share with respect to this idea of, of problem definition and what its role is? Um, there was uh, some people, People who, who are as old as you and me might remember a ridiculous interview with Dick Cheney during the second Iraq war where he sat and talked about known knowns, unknown unknowns and unknown unknowns. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it, it did become ridiculous. But if you cut through what he was trying to say, is that, and, and, and to speak to your point about city experience, a lot of cities sit there and say, they know what they know and they do, but what they don't know is what they don't know. And, that, and that's the biggest challenge. You know, you need to get outside of yourself. If you want to have a, a really clear view about what you need, that involves external stakeholders outside of the city corporations and the people within the city. So our first step in the smart city discussion is to talk to people who, um, who have a vested interest. So, what, what, you, what you can't do and what doesn't work, for example, is, you know, America um, decided at a certain point earlier in the 20th century to have prohibition. But no one bought it. <laughs> mm. and No one followed it. So mm. you, you can't mandate values. Um, you, can't, um, you can't apply top-down pressure on a process that is particularly obtuse to a lot of people in the community. So... The first process is to sit down and say, who are the people? What do they care about? And if you're talking about city of Playford, um, you've got to be able to say there's 92,000 people. There's 2.6 people um, per hectare. It's the least dense urban uh, community in Australia. It has the lowest socioeconomic position apart from the APY lands and the indigenous communities. That this, the largest ethnicity is Baha'i, Persian, Iranian, there's huge issues with connectivity. Only 38% of houses have internet connection, right? Or if you're looking at Sri Lanka, you want to know that they have the highest suicide rate in the world at 34 per 100,000. One fatal car accident 
or road accident every three hours. Uh, chronic kidney disease in children now because of uncontrolled pesticide runoff into drinking water. Um, uh, and only 18% of Sri Lankans live in a city, actually. So is smart city even the right word when you're trying to serve a population? Maybe it's smart country. You know, so getting to the beginnings of understanding who you're trying to serve is, is again, uh, fundamental. Um, I, I go even to one more diverse example, which is the Barossa Valley, where we're working at the moment. That's a, a huge and world-renowned region, but only 12,000 people live there, but some of the biggest corporations on the planet make wine there. So the whole structure of that region and, and all of the, um, the levers that need to be pulled are very, very different from going to LA, greater LA, having 20-odd million people. You know, it's, it's completely different. So the processes and the foundation level requirements are very, very different. Are, are, you, are you seeing... In a, let's start with Australia. Are you seeing a, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're seeing sort of more of a rush straight into solutions and not enough of articulation of context, problem definition and engagement? Uh, I think so. I mean, there are some things that are obvious that some cities need to manage, like traffic, waste, um, Water lighting is an intractable one because of the procurement market, which most listeners would be aware of, where there's normally a sole provider who has no vested interest whatsoever in moving forward in terms of more sustainable outcomes. So that's, that's something that's going to need to be politically facilitated over time, it, it would appear. Um, but in general, those sort of moves in, in terms of, as I say, foundation level systems and processes is strong and it makes sense because you can take the money that you save from those projects that are driven on clear commercial metrics and take them out of the needs basket and then put some of the money over time into the wants basket. So things like economic activation through augmented reality and more, um, I don't want to say obscure, but more, uh, more aspirational aspects of smart city rather than foundation level. You know, again, example, 200 people a year die needlessly in landslides in Sri Lanka, right? This is crazy and it's really simply fixed. So, so um, dealing with those sorts of things and data connectivity, which is a huge problem in Australia. I, I see we've slipped to 55th in the world in terms of even internet speed. So there's, there's half a dozen Central Asian nations that are, have better data than we do, you know? This is a big problem. Corey, is there, is there a sense here of we jump for the things that have some sense of a payback or ROI or business case versus investing in smart technology and data solutions that do make a difference, but we can't necessarily measure, for example. I mean, I, I always hear, well, not always, but I often hear from cities, you know, well, if there's, if there's an ROI or business case, we can do it. And for example, with, smart street lighting or a smart bin, you know, you can run some numbers that clearly show that is a good investment where these other, as you say, sort of more aspirational but fundamental sort of social benefits and outcomes that, um, that could provide good context for smart cities investment, they, they sort of, it's, it's hard to run the business case on those. Do you think that could be part of it or am I maybe just imagining that? 
No, it's a big problem. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that procurement process is a huge impediment and the only projects that really get up are ones that turn on traditional conventional business cases, which are all economic. But when you talk about smart city, you're talking about people, you're talking about the input side, not just the output side of the expense line of the balance sheet. So how do you quantify the well-being of your community? It's not easy. And people who are in charge of procurement at the moment aren't even uh, empowered to think about the well-being of the community. They've got to crunch a three-year return on investment and a 20-year minimum service life. They don't have the opportunity to think about, will people be happier? What does well-being even mean? Will we attract people to live here because of this project and invest in businesses here that will eventually um, better our community? So, you know, there's a city we're working on at the moment with, on slash with um, where that side of the ledger, that is the, the aspirational side, is so fundamentally important because their gross regional product has just halved because of the closure of automotive manufacturing. Now, if you just sit there and crunch numbers on a dwindling revenue base or a dwindling regional product base, you're going to end up just in a very narrow shallow dark hole <laughs> mm. you need to find a way to replace it and you need to be thinking in a different way about um the needs of a community so there needs to be scope in the business case to provide an assessment of well-being or upside beyond cost um, and there's, there's normally two sorts of people at the moment in government who are who are smart city leaders there's people who have come out of an IT type background or an engineering background, and there's people who have come from an economic development background. And as soon as you look at the policy of a city, you'll understand that they're either going to be hard engineering focused or they're going to be economic activation and aspirationally focused, both of which have their problems. My view is there should be, uh, in terms of corporate governance, a small committee of people from each department represented. You're either just going to focus in on hard engineering and cost saving, or you're going to focus in on economic development and aspiration and come up with projects that you just can't find a way to support commercially. Mm. Um, so it's it, it, like I say, the money's there, the tech's there, everything's there. There's just this little vacuum in the middle where the way cities are buy, trying to buy things or have traditionally bought things isn't think about a country dance, you know, all the boys are ready on one side of the wall and all the girls are ready on the other side of the wall. But there's this, there's this area in the middle where no one, can cross it because yeah, of an awkward the place. processes and, and they can be involved. Yeah, so, that's right. It really so, is. So tell me, Corey, have you had any instances of where um, you, you've sort of had success in reframing it for a city or a client? I mean, they that they walk into the smart cities journey thinking it's you know we we want to deploy a list of you know, these 14 solutions, yet you run, you know, you run the sort of ruler over um, socially where they're at economically, you, you sort of help greater, bring greater articulation and definition to who they are and what they want to be and, and sort of say, well, what you think you need to invest in may not necessarily achieve the outcomes, uh, you know, towards these critical problems. Have you, have you had any instances of where you've been able to change that narrative and approach with a client? Yeah, but it's, it's a slow burn. I mean, in that part of what we've been doing, it's probably been the last three years and that's mm -hmm. um, 
in some places an electrical cycle and other places three quarters of one. And that that is, as I said earlier, you know, 80% of what we do is not to do at all with technical engineering in the smart city space. It's to do with arranging uh, and coordinating and aligning organizational structures, business intelligence architecture with infield engineering solutions. And um, the other thing is a lot of cities are engaging in a path where the end game of their investment will leave them with an asset where they have no one qualified or empowered to manage it. So I keep coming back to the fact that it is the biggest challenge. I mean, we're working through that and we've got a couple of cities who are, um, getting close to sort of escalated multi multidisciplinary adoption of smart city technology, but it, it's been a slow burn because um, there needs to be a political will there as well as an organizational and executive capability and explaining the political will is a difficult one for people. And that's why we've almost not that you like it, tried to take smart city out of the lexicon and just talk about, focusing on servicing the people's needs and wants and aspirations. Because once you say smart city, people rightly or wrongly start thinking about technology, not um, a way of thinking that can better serve um, the citizens of cities and states and regions. Do you, I mean, now's your time to sort of call out some winners, but you know, you, you travel a lot globally. What are the cities that you're really attracted to in terms of their approach, um, their context, the way that they're going about investing in smart cities. I mean, are there some real, are there some standouts for you and what, and why? Yeah. I, I, Barcelona is definitely one because when they decided to embark on a smart city journey, the, they got the foundation level aspects, right? They put people in charge. They gave them a budget. This is a really important point. So many cities will have a smart cities officer, but they don't have a budget and they don't have any control or internal jurisprudence, if you will, over projects so that they can steer them in a different direction. You still have a project manager who's going to go down their own path and all they're required to do is get the comments of the smart city person who's ultimately, you know, the, the proverbial toothless tiger. But Barcelona put people in charge. They scoped out their problems. They put a stack of money into this bucket and, and they've been delivering and also they've attracted the attention of the world. And as you know, that you know, the smart cities expos there every year and they've created a good name and a good brand for themselves. Um, and remember this is a country that under Zapatero had something like 40% unemployment, right? This country was moribund. If you go back 10 years under that, um, and I'm not trying to take political size, but he came Zapatero with an extremely socialist regime that ultimately didn't serve the people at all. So leaving aside all of the <clears throat> independence movement that's still going on in, in, in the Basque area, the Basque separatist movement, the transformation of, of Barcelona in particular and Spain overall, if you look at Madrid and Seville and some of the other cities has been exceptional. Singapore, um, leads the charge and you know, I was there a little while ago talking about some opportunities with Singtel and their NCI tech division. And one of the things though, they have to come to terms with is they have one layer of government. And when you go to most other places in the world, the reason they're not successfully exporting the Singapore solution is to do with mostly privacy. You know, when I went to meet with the government 
I arrived in the meeting room and they showed me a video of me leaving my hotel and all the way until I got into the meeting room with them and I was meant to be impressed and I was just terrified instead. So, you know, if you did that in Europe, it's 5% of your, your annual global revenue immediately forfeited in a fine under the GDPR legislation over there for data protection. So Singapore impresses me though, in terms of how it actually works and their advantage is their, their lack of bureaucracy, I guess you would say. Um, they're to me the really two standouts. Dublin's got a big flag in the sand in terms of smart city uh, thinking, but in terms of action, there's a lot of projects and, and you know, they're, they're sort of the litmus test there will be on how they actually start delivering on this strategy. Um, but I think the strategy is strong and Jamie Cudden there in charge of smart cities is doing a great job. Um, it's sort of, they're, they're at the, let's get the rubber to the road um, sort of phase. In Australia, I think where I live here in Adelaide and paradoxically, I have very little to do with the city of Adelaide, um, despite living here and working with dozens of cities around the world. I've been impressed with, with what they're doing. Um, I thought Martin Hazy is the, the mayor here did a great job in creating a public discussion and understanding about smart city and moving on several actions, you know, the parking and the lighting and a few things like this have been and waste management really, really good. Um, I like what Brisbane's doing, you know, they're, they're starting to move forward with, um, you know, a pilot project at the moment that we're involved with for smart cities and smart, um, smart city technology suites. And um, Hobart obviously has recently also had um, an engagement process with the the broader smart city community from technology manufacturers, deliver, deliverers and designers. So I'm looking forward to see where that's going to go. So I think Australia uh, is going pretty well, you know, with the caveat being their ability to execute through their corporate governance and, and traditional procurement type um, models and business case models. But yeah, Barcelona, Singapore, um, pretty impressed with Brisbane and they're probably the ones that I see that are really leaping out. Uh, Corey, I often make the comment that, and, and this is probably relevant globally, but particularly in Australia, and I think part of it is that it's still early, but we've certainly um, got some great proof of concept pilot, you know, early demonstration projects sort of uh, hitting the ground. Um, I... I sort of do question whether we are ready for scaling and replicating. Um, we do know that that funding and financing is, you know, one of many key constraints. Are you uh, are you seeing any sense of the smart cities sort of approach and agenda being institutionalised? within a local government organization to the extent that it'll become the norm? How, like, where do you think we're at with that? Cause that, that's gotta be surely our key measure of success, right? Our ability to not just do it once, but do it again and again. What, what, what's your sort of views and observations on sort of how we're at that, uh, that, that scaling and replicating sort of phase? Um, I think we're still in early infancy and I'll answer your question in, in three parts. Uh, first one is example, a certain city that won a large amount of money from the um, Smart Cities and Suburbs program. 
First, I would say is I reckon they need a longer delivery window on that because most cities, even though the project makes sense, didn't have the organisational framework to be able to deliver it, notwithstanding the money, which is, goes back to my point again, that even with the money, the outcome is not necessarily guaranteed because of the the, the execution risk requirements and in, in internal structure. Um, this city's got the money and now they're sitting there saying, I need to spend all this money by the 30th of June or else I won't get it and has declared a whole bunch of projects, none of which will work at scale, right? <laughs> oh dear. So it's a lighting project where they say, we're only gonna pick the lights that we can monitor and we're gonna ignore the end control, we're gonna ignore the other ones. So well, that's no good because then you're gonna create a competitive environment that selects an outcome that's never gonna work for you overall. Yeah, well, we don't have time for the rest of it. Okay, that's it, you know, so apply that to every suite of technologies and you're gonna have the same problem, right? Mm. The other one is the number of people who rely on the fact that their data is cloud hosted by Amazon or Azure or, you know, Amazon AWS, Azure or IBM Watson, which isn't as popular in Australia as it is in the US. Um, and they think that's enough in terms of cybersecurity. And, you know, two years ago, Deloitte US got hacked. The Pentagon got hacked in a hackathon by an 18 year old. It's not enough. People are saying we don't need to put any more emphasis on cybersecurity. I would say that's just not right. So that's the second part of it that's fundamentally important. And the third part is just getting the connectivity between the people in the field and the people in IT. So the people in the field are charged with getting barbecues, for example. And there's a few smart, quote unquote, smart barbecues, but they're made by people who have spent the last 50 years making barbecues. So you don't have to do too much to make a barbecue smart if you're normally making a barbecue, right? So it might be the best barbecue going around, but it's connectivity and again, it's cybersecurity is so incompatible with the needs of the city that it's a fraught process to try and connect that barbecue to the city's IT network. You know, the city of Atlanta got hacked through a tropical fish tank thermometer that was IoT enabled and connected to the server. The whole city hacked. They've lost 10 years of court records, right? This is crazy. 10 years of court records, March last year. Um, everyone's rate notices, people were paying by cash for months. Um, the overall impact of that hacking through a very simple device is, is almost beyond comprehension. So um, in terms of scalability, the cities that are getting their structure right and their corporate um, governance and procurement policies right, they're sort of stepping ahead a bit. but. There's still a lot of money being spent on stuff that will never ever work at scale because the way the projects are being scoped and tendered um, either doesn't allow the best solution to bid for it or it's not going to be allowed to select the best solution because of its traditional assessment criteria. So, so Corey, I, I need to ask you the question, I mean, uh, moving, moving to, a more, to a more sort of optimistic sort of space now, what's exciting you? about the smart cities agenda. What are you getting excited about? Uh, I like the discussion about it. I like the fact that people are starting to talk a lot more about those foundation level elements, like the, the social benefits and finding ways, you know, we've talked before about the city of Santa Monica's wellbeing index. Like that is a great innovation and it's something that needs to be carried forward. Um, I like the fact that the legal community and the insurance community are starting to get involved because they're fundamental to it. Anything to do with autonomous or connected vehicles, if you don't have the insurers online, then nothing matters. The tech doesn't matter. 
Um, so, and I think cities are starting to become more mature in, in understanding their uh, limitations in terms of procurement and structure. And what really excites me also is the opportunities in future industry education for cities. And, you know, I use the example of automotive. In the late 19th century, cars were created in Detroit and, and Munich, more or less at the same time. And those cities, with the caveat over Detroit and mis just totally missing it with the, the, <laughs> the, low, the low emissions vehicles, mm -hmm. um, those cities benefited for you know, 130 years by being first adopters of a new technology. And the really, really intelligent cities and communities aren't just focusing on saving water and electricity. They're focused on economic transformation, education and future industries. So we're seeing, you know, a couple of cities we're working with that are, are striving to release the first future industry training courses, right? The syllabuses that can be circulated around the world to train people in um, smart city management, governance, technology, law, financing, that's a really exciting part of the piece for us. But, but ultimately, it all comes back to cities getting cl closer and realising that after, you know, X number of years talking about smart cities, coming back to um, the, the realisation that if you're serving your people and occasionally using technology, then you're getting a great outcome. Corey, I want to, um, I want to sort of wrap now on a more personal question. I mean, you... Um, you're seeing a lot, you're getting involved in a lot, both nationally and internationally. Um, share with me sort of what 2019 has in store for you. What are you, what are you sort of going to be working on this year? Um, we've got a lot uh, going on in Sri Lanka. There's a, a smart city slash lighting project that we're involved in there. Um, we're really committed, you know, our business as a privately held business, we don't have to turn on metrics of, you know, year on year return and return on capital and all of that. And our focus is all about providing social benefits with also a positive economic and environmental profile. So we tend to focus on finding the solutions to the most difficult problems. Example, outside of Sri Lanka and looking at how to use big data to analyze at risk people for suicide and also monitoring elephants getting on railway tracks. Mm. Uh, we're dealing with tourism activation. You know, Sri Lanka wants to go from 2.3 to 3 million tourists a year. It's a key source of income, but you need to have your foundation level infrastructure, right? That's one example. Another one is the housing crisis in Dublin, where we're working closely with our, our friends at Deloitte on how you can get 11,000 homeless people. And let's be clear for everyone in Australia listening, these homeless people are people because of the housing boom, uh, the economic Celtic tiger over there that are homeless. We're talking about people where one and a half parents work with a family that cannot afford a house, right? This isn't mm. people with substance abuse problems or mental health issues. This is people who desperately need a home but just flat out cannot afford it. So the government there owns 32,000 dwellings that aren't fire safe and they've got, so they're empty, empty apartments right now where it's freezing in Dublin and there's 11,000 people on the street. So we've been working on a, a IOT enabled fire safety solution to allow those people to be housed by providing better decision-making in egress paths and strategies 
um, better better information for first responders in the event of fire. Because the other thing is these buildings can't be knocked over. They're heritage listed in the middle of the city, right? So they may be 800 years old. Wow. So the net outcome of that, if if it gets to the point where it looks like we will now, is 11,000 people no longer sleeping on the streets and over 400 million euros a year revenue to government and the whole reactivation of, of historic precincts in, in um, major cities. So then there's that. And then there's, you know, smart city, 4G, 5G enablement through Los Angeles as the Olympics in 2028. Is that right? There was a deal with Paris, I think, and them. I'm sure they're 2028. Um, putting smart nodes throughout the whole city with, you know, electric vehicle charges for small, medium, large vehicles and all the other suites of technology um, that you would expect to see. And then stuff as crazy as we're helping with an EOI for a wine precinct to put autonomous five-star restaurant vehicles that will drive <laughs> you around the wine district and you'll be able to pick your menu before you go, pay whatever money you want. You don't need to have a driver. They'll just be fitted out like a traditional restaurant on a European train ride and it'll take you to whatever wineries you want to go and you don't have to worry about designated drivers and all of this sort of stuff. So really diverse and interesting stuff. Um, and uh, keeps us keeps us all interested. It, um, it is certainly uh, a, a sort of a diverse buffet of... Um, cities but also projects you're working on Corey so um want to thank you um so much for for joining us and sharing those insights very much want to follow up with you on a uh, on a future episode to sort of see how you think we've sort of moved forwards and and plugged some of those gaps and overcome those observations uh, but for now thank you so much for joining us on the smart cities chronicles no thanks for having me i've really enjoyed talking Adam. thanks and for our listeners, uh, a reminder that you can subscribe to the Smart Cities Chronicles podcast, uh, our platforms, the usual uh, iTunes podcast, uh, SoundCloud, and also Spotify. Uh, you can head to our website, smartcitieschronicles.com, uh, to find out more. We also love feedback, um, chronicles at anz.smartcitiescouncil.com. My name is Adam Beck, your host for The Chronicles. I've had with me joining us on episode 21 of The Chronicles, Corey Gray, who is CEO of LVX Global and one of uh, the Smart City Council's partners here in the regions. Uh, until our next episode, have a great week and keep well. <laughs>